0: All right, we're back in Mark's Gospel, chapter 10, this morning. And the central theme of this Gospel is succinctly stated in chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, Mark does not portray the Lord Jesus as a king who should be obeyed and served, but as the servant of the Lord who ministers to the needs of others. And we've seen this as uh, Mark has developed his gospel. Jesus is preaching and teaching the kingdom of God, uh, showing people the difference between that and the kingdoms of this world. He's been healing people. Uh, He's been uh, doing miracles. He's been casting out demons, all in uh, service to the Lord his God. But his greatest act of self-sacrificing love and servitude is about to take place as he and the disciples approach the city of Jerusalem. For the third and last time, he discloses his ultimate purpose in coming into the world. And he says to them that he must suffer, he must die, But on the third day, he will rise again. As usual, the disciples do not grasp this. They don't get it. Uh, They can't comprehend what all this means. So Jesus, once again, teaches them about discipleship, which does not seek greatness by the world standards, but a willingness to deny oneself and serve others. A final act of healing closes out this section in Mark's Gospel. It involves giving sight to this man named Bartimaeus, and this really uh, is similar to the miracle that began this section, which was another healing of a blind man. And uh, this really kind of points out to us because this is bookended, uh, and inside those bookends you have these teachings to the disciples, it really kind of shows us their their blindness to following Jesus, what his ministry is all about, and what he's all about. And it's not until the narrative continues and draws to a close that they finally begin to see the truth of Christ's person and work. Now, as modern-day disciples, we need to follow Christ's example of service. And in this passage, we see three truths regarding the way of a servant. First of all, the way of the servant is the way of the cross. Jesus was on his way to his cross, the instrument by which he would die and pay the ransom price for our deliverance from sin. It was the way of ultimate sacrifice for others who really didn't deserve it. Like him, we take up our cross and sacrificially serve God and others. Then the way of the servant is not to master others, but to minister to them. The request of James and John shows that this lesson has not yet been learned by the disciples. And then finally, the way of the servant, excuse me, the way of the servant opens the eyes of others so they may follow Christ as well. As Jesus physically opened the blind uh, eyes of Bartimaeus, who then followed him, we convey the message of truth today that will open spiritually blind eyes to the Lord. Our Heavenly Father, we pray this morning your blessing as we look into this uh, scripture once again about the way of the servant. Lord, we're thankful that you have saved us, that we have been able to walk with you for many, many years. Help us, Lord, never to lose sight of the fact that one of the purposes of your salvation is we might serve you and help others. Um, Remind us of this truth as we look to your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. (coughs) All right, in the first few verses here, as Jesus reiterates the purpose of his ministry, we see that the way of the servant is the way of the cross, as Jesus again shows us that he's going to take up his cross in verses 32 uh, to 34. Now, Jesus is on the road once again, and uh, note the very last entry, and compare it to that first entry. Now, they were on the road, and then in verse 50, he rose, he came to Jesus, verse 52, immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus on the road. And Mark has mentioned being on the way or on the road so many times as they have left Capernaum that we have to realize there's something more than just being on a road traveling in a direction. It's standing for Jesus being on the way to the cross, on the road to the cross, and his disciples going with him on that road. He now uh, identifies the destination for the first time as being Jerusalem, the city of God where the temple of the Lord is located, And he is walking before the disciples now, not with them. He's resolutely leading the way to the place of death. And Luke records that Jesus set his face steadfastly to go up to Jerusalem. So this causes the disciples to be somewhat astonished. And that's the same word used back in verse 24 of this chapter, <clears throat> Excuse me. Where they were astonished by what Jesus said concerning the rich being able to get into heaven. Um, so it's difficult for them to grasp why Jesus was so determined to go to Jerusalem, which now has become uh, uh, great opposition to his ministry. And if what he said was true, why does he want to move so quickly to his final? So I'm sure the atmosphere as they're making this last day's journey to Jerusalem was very solemn and ominous, and it made all those who accompanied him fearful. Then he discloses once again his purpose to his disciples in verses 33 to 34. Uh, he, He takes them aside and he says to them what's going to happen Again, he's kind of going into a little more detail than he has previously, as he tells them that they are going to Jerusalem now. That's the final destination. And he, the Son of Man, is going to be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes. So that's giving us a hint to what uh, one of the disciples is going to do, Judas. And they will condemn him to death. Now, these are the... Uh, this is the Sanhedrin, the Jewish court. They're going to condemn him unjustly to death, but they do not have the power to take his life. So they deliver him to the Gentiles, which would be the Romans, and then the Gentiles will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him. But he never leaves it right there. He always says on the third day, he's going to be raised from the dead. Now, later on, Jesus is going to say the Son of Man has got to give his life as a ransom for many. And uh, uh, this, uh, this is uh, the means by which his life will be offered up. And the only other place we have that term in the New Testament, ransom, is in Matthew's account. Now, the word ransom uh, <coughs> is brought out more in the Old Testament, And it refers to the payment of a price in order to purchase the freedom of a slave. For many, uh, in that verse, means in place of many. So it's a substitutionary sacrifice. And the Lord means by that that he would voluntarily offer up himself in our place to pay the price of our redemption from sin. And so this kind of captures a truth um, in a a picture or metaphor that we are in bondage or slavery to sin with no way of escape, and Jesus, through his blood, pays the payment for our freedom from sin. So his sacrifice was really the ultimate example of love and mercy and grace and self-denial. It's the epitome of what it means to be a servant. Now, we turn that around and we see that the way of his servants is also the way of a cross. This has been portrayed by Jesus really since that first time he revealed it to his disciples. He said in chapter 8, verse 34, whoever desires to come after me, Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Then we found in the last uh, 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 section in chapter 10, verse 21, as he's dealing with the rich uh, young ruler, he says, come, take up the cross and follow me. And of course, we cannot take up his cross. Only he could do that as the son of God. But we do have a cross, and our cross is also one of self-denial in order to serve God and serve others. And in this life, we're going to go through much difficulty and suffering and affliction in order to really help other people. But it will all be worth it because, as Jesus said, he would be raised up on the third day. So that means that uh, if he was able to overcome death, he's able to do the same for us, and our uh, future glory will be in heaven with him. But are we willing to do this? Are we willing to take up that cross of self-denial? Are we willing to suffer for the sake of others and helping them? Do we sacrifice our time and our talents, our energy, our resources for the sake of others, or do we spend everything entirely upon ourselves and perhaps our families? So the way of the servant is the way of the cross. It was that way for Jesus. It should be that way for his disciples. Now, the second thing we want to see here is in verses 35 to 45, and that is that the way of the servant is not mastery over others, but ministry to them. Selfish ambition and self-sacrifice are mutually exclusive. Selfish ambition keeps you from taking up your cross and serving others. And we see this uh, developed here as James and John come to the Lord Jesus and want him to meet a request. And they're really seeking a position over others in Christ's kingdom as they do this. Now, it seems that they uh, come to him Maybe they've kind of cornered him or taken him to the side. Uh, and they ask him in verse 37 to, or excuse me, ver, uh, verse 35, they, they ask him uh, for a favor, so to speak, to do something for them, carte blanche. Uh, uh, no stipulations. So Jesus asked them, well, what do you want me to do for you? And then they make this request in verse 37, Grant us that we may sit, one on your right hand and the other on your left, in your glory. Now, we might be a bit taken aback by that, especially in the context where Jesus has just told them again what's going to happen to them. But it shows us that they just don't get it. For somehow, uh, some reason, they're they're blanking this out of their mind, and and they're they're not uh, uh, thinking clearly. Um, they want the two highest positions in the kingdom, one at his right hand, one at his left. So, what is revealing it uh, to us is that they're still blind to the true mission of the Lord Jesus. Um. If they were thinking straight, we wonder how they could even have thought this way, because Jesus says he's going to die. He's not going to be inaugurated as a king. He's going to, to, to die. So they totally miss the point of what he's saying. And when they mentioned that they want to do this in your glory, that's not his heavenly glory that they're talking about, but their assumption that he's going to come into his earthly glory as the Messianic king of Israel. And what they desired was not a position there of service in the kingdom, but a position of rule over others. They think Jesus is going to be crowned king somehow, and they want the next two highest positions at his right and left hand. That would even place him over the other disciples. There's not going to be any room for anybody else. So Jesus then responds to them in such a way to get them to think about what they're really saying because, again, they don't really know what they're getting into. And he doesn't rebuke them for what they said. Rather, he turns this again into a kind of a teaching situation in verse 38. You do not know what you ask. And they're going to find out that that was true. And then he asks them a question, as he often does, Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? In other words, do you think you can go through the same things that I'm going to go through? Now think about that. What did he just say? Well, he said, I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be whipped. I'm going to be spit on. I'm going to be killed. So that's the cup he's talking about the cup that he must bear to take on himself the wrath of God for our sins. And their view of their future certainly didn't have anything to do with that. The road of service that they will take is going to be similar to Jesus, but they don't really even realize it yet. As we said before, before the crown, there must be a cross. Before glory, there's going to be some suffering. Are they really prepared to drink the cup that Jesus will uh, drink as a ransom for our sin? He's going to be baptized. He's going to be inundated, if you will, with sorrow and pain and suffering. His disciples will not suffer exactly the same way he will. Of course, they cannot. But they too are going to be drinking a cup They're, too, uh, going to be baptized with hardship and difficulty. Uh, Just by way of example, think of the life of the Apostle Paul and some of the places where he, he described the things that he went through as he spread the gospel from place to place. Well, James and John, again, not knowing what they're saying, pipe up with a hearty amen, and they say to the Lord Jesus, We are able. thought it interesting uh, in one of the uh, annotated Bible notes that this comment was made. No more naive words have ever been spoken as those found here coming from James and John. They said it with such confidence and ease, yet they had little clue as to what they were affirming. And again, they couldn't see the future. Uh, They couldn't even get what Jesus was saying about the immediate future. But Jesus does inform them that they indeed will follow Christ's example in verse 39. So Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink the cup that I drink. And with the baptism I am baptized with, you will be baptized. But sitting on my right or left hand, that's not for me to decide. That's already been determined by one uh, who is in heaven, and that would be God the Father. But think about that again. James will become a great leader. He will be the elder of the church in Jerusalem, the mother church, as the gospel spread after Christ's resurrection. That's a position of authority. But he also is going to be the church's first martyr, beheaded by Herod Agrippa in Acts chapter 12. John is going to become pastor, eventually, of the church at Ephesus. Again, a very large church uh, that was a springboard for evangelism in uh, that part of the world. But he's going to outlive all the other disciples and end his days suffering loneliness, And persecution and exile on the island of Patmos. So they will drink the cup and be baptized with the baptism of suffering. Now the Lord further indicates to them something else along these lines, and that is that the way of the servant goes against social and cultural norms of greatness. They're not to be thinking about greatness in the same way that the world does. And this comes out as the other disciples hear what's going on, and they respond to it in verse 41. When the ten heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. Now, why were they displeased? Are we to believe that they all saw this whole situation very clearly? That they understood James and John were wrongfully vying to advance themselves in the kingdom of God? Were they upset because James and John should have been thinking about the master's imminent suffering and death? Or were they thinking, how dare they jump in before I can? That's probably a little bit closer to the truth. Because we know not very long ago they were all arguing with each other about who would be greatest in the kingdom. And so they were probably mad and upset because these two approached Jesus before anybody else had a chance to. And we know that Jesus is now going to talk to all of them, not just James and John, about this idea of greatness and what it means in his kingdom. So he calls them uh, to teach them how they're not going to be like everybody else in society and in their culture. And he reminds them in verse 42, you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lorded over them. They like those positions of authority. They can tell everybody what to do. They're great ones to exercise authority over them. So in the real world, there's all this politicizing going on. There's this seeking of greater and greater power, of getting higher and higher positions, so you can tell more and more people what to do. That's not the way it's going to be in my kingdom. That's not the way of Christ's servants. They don't worry about being in positions of great authority. Someone else also said, that they needed to understand that status in the kingdom of God cannot be stowed as favor or even earned by loyalty and self-sacrifice. They were asking for a favorable position. They were asking for places of authority, even though they were loyal to Christ, and uh, they might have been going through some self-sacrifice in these years. Uh, But uh, that's not going to earn them this idea of greatness, and that's why jesus said well it's not up to me to make that choice. So the greatest disciple in christ's kingdom is not the one who's the boss over everybody it's the one who serves and he brings that out <coughs> excuse me <coughs> in verse forty three <coughs> Yet it shall not be so among you, but whosoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. So again, Jesus reverses things that are normal in human society because they don't apply to the kingdom of God. Now the word servant here does not connote a free individual serving another. It's best translated as a slave, as verse 44 indicates. And most of the other places where it's used, the term bond slave would better translate it uh, because it refers to someone who willingly sells himself into bondage or slavery to another person. So he doesn't have authority over himself, He's under the rule of that master, whoever it might be. And of course, we're under Christ as our master. We're bond slaves to him. And so we should have that same attitude toward other people that we are willing to serve them uh, to be their slave, if you will. Now, this was the attitude of Christ in his willingness not to be served as he really deserved to be, after all, he's God in flesh. But to serve, even to the point of giving his life for others. And Paul captured that truth in his writings when he wrote of the Lord Jesus, he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bond servant. So those who have a servant's heart are the ones who are going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. The way of the servant isn't mastery over other people, but ministry to them. Now that brings us to the closing paragraph in this section, beginning in chapter 11. We're actually going to move into the last week of Christ's life. So the next five or six chapters, it's all about that one week in the life of Jesus. And this is what everything's been leading up to. But this is the last record we have now of a miracle or a healing being performed uh, on a person. And what we see here is the way of the servant helps open the eyes of others so they may follow Christ. Jesus, of course, is God in flesh. He has the power to heal people, even blind people. And that's what happens here with blind Bartimaeus. And what we want to note here about this man is his spiritual perception. He was physically blind, but he was not spiritually blind. As a matter of fact, it seems he may have been a little bit more on the uptake than the disciples. All right, we're told in verse 46 that they came to Jericho. Jericho is located about 20 miles from Jerusalem by way of road, and it would be a good day's journey. So they're on the very last stretch as they come up to Jerusalem. And as they're going out of the city, a crowd has gathered, and they're following Jesus. This is very likely a group of worshipers going up for the week of feast and the... Uh, uh, the the uh, Feast of Passover. So they're going up for this last week uh, where they uh, are going to be throwing out their palm branches and calling Jesus uh, the one who comes in the name of the Lord, uh, the one who comes in the name of David. But what we see here is blind Bartimaeus, uh, who is begging along the, the the roadway because of his disability, And when he hears that Jesus of Nazareth has come, he understands who this is. He knows who it is. He's probably heard about him. And he addresses him then in a very unusual way in verse 47. He begins to cry out. This would be in a loud voice that would be easy to hear. And says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. So he recognizes that Jesus has the power to do something about his condition, and he he could have mercy on him if he desired. But the unusual thing here is what he calls Jesus. He says, Jesus, son of David. We don't have that recorded anyplace else up to this point in time. So this man understood that Jesus was more than a Nazarene. He was son of David. And we all know that David was the king that God selected for Israel and that God made a covenant with King David. It was an everlasting covenant that he would have a reign forever And he would always have someone to sit upon his throne, which indicates that eventually someone of an eternal nature must be the one who sits upon that eternal throne. So it's a messianic title. He is saying here that Jesus is the fulfiller of the Davidic covenant, the son of David. He understands really kind of more than the disciples did because he's also connecting that with his power to heal. So let's see what happens here. Well, uh, there's a sense in which this poor, blind outcast understood more about Jesus than the disciples. And perhaps he's an example of what Jesus was talking about, of one of these little ones who make up the kingdom of God and one of the last who would be first. Now, when this is going on, we're told in verse 48 that the crowd tries to shut him up. They warned him, be quiet, but that doesn't stop him. Now, we don't exactly know why they were doing that, but again, probably because they didn't think Jesus would want to bother with a blind beggar along the road. And if that was true, well, they didn't know him very well, did they? But their discouragement, their opposition, does not shut up Bartimaeus. It makes him shout out all the more. And would that not be a great indication of this man's faith? Now, Jesus does stop. He calls for the man. That was typical of his reaction in these kind of situations. He did take time out uh, for this person, no matter what his social standing was and no matter what the people thought about him. But at that point in time, the crowd immediately changes their uh, opposition and says, well, be of good cheer. He's calling for you, so you need to go to him. And then blind Bartimaeus takes his garment. This would be his, probably his outer mantle that he could have been sitting on or maybe had wrapped around him. It could be used as a blanket. It was probably the only other piece of clothing that he has but when Jesus says, come to him, he throws that aside, the only thing that he has, and he comes to the Lord Jesus. Now think about the contrast of that with the rich young ruler who had all kinds of things. And uh, 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 when Jesus dealt with him and asked him to come and follow him, that rich man would not get rid of his riches in order to follow Jesus. But this man takes the only thing he has, throws it away, and he goes to be with the Lord. Now Jesus, as the man comes to him, asks him, what can he do for you? And we would say, obviously, we know what the answer to that's going to be. I want to see see again. I want to receive my sight. And when Jesus responds to uh, this desire, he comments about his faith. He says, go your way, your faith has made you well. Now, that's suggestive that Jesus mentions that his faith has made him well. Now, of course, Jesus is the one who healed him. But the word well there is interesting because it also can be translated uh, save or salvation. So his trust in Jesus to be able to heal him also included the avenue of the healing of salvation. Bartimaeus is made whole, complete, not just physically, but spiritually, because he put his faith in the Lord Jesus. Note also that Jesus said to him, go your way. There's that idea of the way again. You're free to uh, uh, go back into normal society and take up a normal life again. But what happened when Bartimaeus is healed? Well, we're told that when he received his his sight, he followed Jesus on the road, on the way. He became a follower. So he didn't go his way to go back into society, maybe get a job and be involved in Jericho. He became a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Uh, one commentator noted, he is an example of one who understands who Jesus was, responded to his call despite discouragement of others, and followed as a disciple. And this is in stark contrast, again, to that rich ruler who had high status in society. He was called and encouraged by Jesus to follow him, but he couldn't give up his riches. As a servant of Christ, while well, we too can be used to open blind eyes, not physically, but spiritually. Obviously, uh, we don't do that in a physical sense today. However, blindness is spiritual as well as physical. The disciples themselves were having a little bit of problem of seeing correctly who Jesus is. And people today are blind to the truth of who he is, And why he came, their eyes need to be opened. They can only be opened as they uh, focus on his word. And we are people who can give them the word of God. So we have a responsibility to care for the souls of men who are blind, to share with them the gospel of the kingdom so that they can be made whole like Bartimaeus was. So they might understand that Jesus came as the ransom For their souls, that they might have eternal life. So, as Jesus opened the eyes of blind Bartimaeus, and he was saved, so we can use God's word to open the understanding of those who do not know Jesus, so they can trust him and they can become his followers today. So, in this passage, we see the way of the servant is the way of the cross the way of self-sacrifice, of self-denial, the way of hardship for the sake of Christ. Are you such a servant? The way of the servant is to minister to others rather than to master over them or rule over them. And the servant humbly puts others before self, surrenders his rights to Jesus, and willing to be last rather than first. Are you such a servant? And finally, the way of the servant is to open the eyes of others so they can follow Christ as well. Are you actively trying to reach people that you know with the gospel? Are you such a servant? May the Lord help us to be so. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again, we are thankful today for these wonderful teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. And despite the obtuseness of the disciples, he kept on telling them the truth and finally opened their eyes to it. Lord, we're looking at things from the other side of the cross and uh, we realize that we must be like Christ if we know him as our Savior. So Lord, help us to take up our cross and follow you. Help us, Lord, to serve others instead of trying to have mastery over them. And Lord, help us to be used of you to open up blind eyes to the truth of your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.